Houston Star of Hope Mission brings you a moment of hope. Could you spare a little hope today? Hi, this is Scott Arthur. For the past two years, I've had the privilege of sharing a moment of hope with a giant of a man, and I mean that. His voice and his spirit are larger than life. Dick Drury always has a twinkle in his eye and godly wisdom in his message. And that booming voice has been heard in more than a hundred podcasts and in more than 50 countries. I knew him on his first day at Star of Hope, and now I'll know him on his last day, which is at the end of this week. So Dick, how many years has it been? Scott, it's been nearly 20 years uh, with Star of Hope, and 15 of those have been as the director of the Men's Development Center, the men's ministry at Star of Hope. What brought you to Star of Hope? How'd you get there? Well, I'll give you the short uh, version of that. Uh, When I was 17 years old, uh, through a series of events and conversations, I found myself by the side of my bed one night uh, giving my life to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And about a month or two following that, I had the opportunity to travel down with some elders from my church to the old men's shelter that was at 407 La Branch which is essentially now center field, or the entrance to center field of Minute Maid Park. Mm-hmm. And I went down there, 17 years old, uh, freshly uh, related to, to Christ, and I uh, didn't really know much except that. I didn't know uh, much of what I was doing except that I knew I belonged to him. And the elders asked me as I was getting out of the car that night in front of this building that I knew nothing about, to bring a short message to the men in the building at their chapel service. And uh, before I could say no, they were already in the building and I had to follow them in. And I honestly had no idea what Star of Hope was or certainly what a rescue mission was. But as soon as I walked in the building, I fell in love with it. And I I fell in love specifically with the smell, the odor uh, that was inside that building. It was an August night, if I remember correctly, and there were about 300 or 350 men stuffed in that little building. And uh, it was prior to showers. Uh, I'm glad to say we do showers earlier now. Uh, But then they did showers uh, for the men following the chapel service. And I will tell you, Scott, that was perhaps the most bracing odor uh, I have ever encountered in my life. It was a combination of just about everything you can imagine, Uh, perspiration, um, and I won't uh, go any deeper than that, but it was just about everything you can imagine rolled into one one smell. And as a matter of fact, uh, as we're talking about it, now I can still smell it. And that was uh, some 51 years ago. And uh, I discovered later on, or it came to me later on, that I loved that smell Uh, because in my estimation that was the smell uh, for which Jesus Christ died. It was the smell of uh, self-effort and humiliation and hopelessness uh, all rolled into one. And when uh, I finished uh, saying whatever I said uh, at the chapel service, uh, we had what uh, Star Hope and in certain traditions we call an altar call, and uh, five men got up out of that congregation and came forward and fell on their faces at that little altar and gave their lives to Christ. And I don't know that I've ever seen those men uh, again, but I know I'll see them in heaven. And as I was leaving uh, the chapel, still wondering, what is this place? This is the most uh, 
mysterious and uh, powerful uh, place I'd ever been in, uh, I sensed that the Holy Spirit said to me, someday you will be serving Christ back here. So went and grew up a little bit, uh, went to college, went to seminary, served in several churches around the country as a pastor, but I never lost that, just that voice in the back of my head uh, that said, someday you'll be serving at Star of Hope. And uh, about 20 some odd years ago, I went through some personal difficulty and um, didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And uh, my phone rang. And it was the man who was my predecessor uh, at my current position, a man named Gary Brown, a wonderful guy, who said to me, and we had met one time previously, he said, I don't know what you're doing right now. Uh, and you may think I'm crazy, but I had a position that just opened on my staff today. And quote, unquote, I believe God wants you to come take it. Well, man, I tell you, I was down in his office two hours later interviewing for that position. And two weeks later, uh, there I was at that old men's shelter uh, serving Jesus. And now for the last 15 years or so, I've had the privilege of, of running the whole place. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And uh, it, uh, it still, as I talk about it, uh, it still just amazes me that uh, God loved me enough and had enough mercy on me to not only speak that word to me when I was a teenager, but then out of my own personal tragedy, actually bring it uh, to fulfillment and fruition. So that's how I got there. Wow. Let me, let me go back. Yes. 17. You were 17 when you made that first preaching yeah. experience. You're wondering how old I am. I was 1967, so I'm now 68 uh, I, years I old. I can do the math. Okay, all right. all right. All right. I'm, I'm, I've known you all yeah. the time that you have been here, yeah. almost 20 years. Yeah. And I'm trying to imagine you at 17 or even before 17. Now, number one, did mm -hmm. you have that voice when you I were a teenager? I did, actually. Yeah. I did. And I, I don't know when it changed, uh, but it did at some point. And, 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 I mean, did you want to be a radio announcer? Did you always want no, to be a preacher? I mean, no. I, as a matter of fact, uh, part of the amazing uh, part of that whole thing is that I was, I was very shy as a teenager and reticent to be in front of people. Uh, when, for example, I had to do a science project in junior high school, I, I'd have rather taken a beating from George Foreman in his prime than do that. Um, and I, I found myself, when I gave my life to Christ, uh, having all of that um, basically leave me. And it wasn't a sense of, now I'm a hot shot, and I can stand up for anybody and do anything. It was a sense of, as long as I preach Christ and stick to the Bible when I open my mouth, I have nothing to be afraid of, nothing to worry about. Uh, so that's kind of how that happened. And, you know, it was a confidence in God, not a confidence in myself, that began to grow and flourish, and here I am today. So you weren't really a typical teenager then? No. 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 I, was, um, I, wasn't, a, I wasn't a troublemaker. I wasn't any of that. Uh, but I was just uh, kind of to myself and, um, and just didn't, uh, didn't have much of a public awareness, let me put it that way, mm -hmm. uh, and was just happy to be by myself and maybe a small cadre of friends, but uh, that, that was the way it is. And so the idea that uh, at some point 
uh, God would use me to stand in front of 10 people or a thousand people or several thousand, depending on the situation, and talk about him, it's still stunning to me to think about that, that that's what he called me to do. And I'll be very bold to tell you that uh, that confidence when I'm in front of people is really only there when I'm talking about him. If I'm like right now, I'm pretty upset, Scott, at you for asking me to do this because I'm talking about myself. Uh, and I'd rather, you know, this is not the thing I would seek to do to, um, you know, to talk about Dick Drury, except as God has changed my life. I'm happy to talk about that. Well, you've changed a lot of lives over the almost 20 years you've been with us, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Mm-hmm. I still want to go back to your, your childhood. When yeah. you were 17, you you <laughs> had that very first preaching experience, right. and, and you right. saw, you smell, you felt, you experienced. Right. But then it wasn't until, what, how many years later, the year 2000, mm-hmm. did you actually start with Star of Hope? Right. What happened in between those years? Uh, I was uh, privileged to pastor several churches. Um, after, obviously, I went to college and then seminary, uh, pastored churches, and uh, actually came back to my home church here in Houston, First Presbyterian, as an associate pastor right out of seminary, and went from there to be the senior pastor of a beautiful church in Orange, Texas, which was right on the Texas-Louisiana border on Interstate 10. Was there about seven or eight years. And then, interestingly enough, I wound up in Hollywood, California for about five or six years, as uh, part of the pastoral staff of the First Presbyterian Church there. And uh, I'll tell you, let me just put a comma there. That's where I really began to fall in love with ministry to homeless people and to desperate people. Our church uh, property was one block north of Hollywood Boulevard. And consequently, we we would see on any given day multiple thousands of men, women, and children who were very nomadic and who were wandering up and down Hollywood Boulevard with nowhere to go, don't even remember where they came from, many of them, and they would come to our church looking for help. And uh, I had the opportunity, because of my position on the staff, to develop some ministries to those people, uh, many of which I understand are still uh, going today. And um, so I spent about five or six years there at Hollywood Press, and then believe it or not, went to Montgomery, Alabama as a pastor there, and um, uh, obviously the home of Dexter Avenue uh, King Memorial Baptist Church, and we did some uh, great ministry with those folks as well. Then came back to Houston and planted uh, the City of Refuge Church here. Um, Soon after that uh, is when my personal uh, difficulties began in my home. And I withdrew uh, for a season from ministry, and you'll love this, taught kindergarten for a year and a half. uh, Okay, I'm I'm trying to picture that. Yeah, so am I. (laughs) I think some of those kids are still trying to picture it, too. I had 18 children, uh, none of whom had a father at home. And so I think my principal hired me, not because I was so great at ABCs, but because as she told me later on, uh, you're very fatherly and these kids needed uh, that influence in the class. Uh, after that ended is when uh, my phone rang and I started at Star of Hope after that. 
So you've taken everything that happened to you from the age of 17 to the year 2000 <laughs> yeah. and put it all together, and now you're at the front door of Starfolk. Yes, right. And uh, you have become uh, the head of client services. Became the head and, of client services. And you have a heart for the homeless. Yes. That happened on the West Coast. Right. And I guess it all started to fall together for you. Yes. Yes, it did. And, um, you know, I, I'm the kind of person that doesn't believe anything just happens to you. I believe God orchestrates uh, all those events and in a way he conspires against you to bring uh, the good the bad and the ugly to bear and uh, makes you into the person he wants you to be and puts you where he wants you to serve him Uh, so yes all those things uh, the tragedies the education the highs the lows the ins and the outs uh, all to this point uh, served I believe uh, his purpose to have me be who I am and do what I did at Star of Hope for almost 20 years. Mm. Helping the least of these. Yes, yes. Why men as opposed to women and children? Well, uh, simply because that's where they put me. <laughs> I, um, I, I love the women and children. Uh, I have a real heart for the men, though, because um, I believe that the men are, in a way, the linchpin of the family. And we believe uh, at the Men's Development Center that if a man uh, gets a connection with Christ through faith and his life is renewed and remade, uh, there's a great opportunity for him to reconcile with his family and to become the husband and the father that we believe God wants him to be. And which uh, a lot of these guys will confess they wish they were and want to be. Uh, but we give them the tools along with the spiritual uh, awakening uh, to be humble, uh, productive, uh, providing men uh, for their homes. One of the amazing things that happens at the men's shelter, and you've seen this a lot of times, Scott, is that we'll have commencements once a month for the men who are moving on from their program. And after about nine months or so, uh, we'll have a commencement and then the men stand up uh, in front of the gathered congregation, usually about 300 people, and they are wearing a suit. Uh, they give a two or three minute testimony about how their life has changed since coming to Star of Hope. Oftentimes we'll look out there and there's a formerly estranged wife and children uh, who feel that that man standing up there has at some point along the way thrown them under the bus and they hear of the change and they come and there's a tremendous reconciliation oftentimes right there on the floor of our chapel. Uh, so that's, that's part of why I love ministry to the men. I, I think that once the men uh, get what they need uh, spiritually and educationally and in terms of job readiness and we teach them how to be faithful and how to save, we teach them the glory of thrift uh, then they can go home and have a new life with a family. It's been my experience uh, that many times when uh, a man comes at the bottom of his life to mm-hmm. uh, the men's center, mm-hmm. the last thing in the world they want to talk about is God. Yeah, right, right. Well, and we, we, uh, we honestly um, understand that. We, uh, we're real upfront with them about that. Some do. Some come in there. And they're just, our terminology is they're sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they know that God has to touch them or they're going to die. Other men come in there just because they're hungry or they need a shower or just, um, you know, a place to sleep for the night. 
But we tell them all the time, we're really upfront with them, that God brought you here. You didn't just back into this place. And we believe that a God who loves you brought you to the door uh, of our little mission home so that he could touch you and rescue you and redeem you. Somebody asked me the other day how I see uh, the Men's Development Center, and one of the images that came to my mind is I see us as a little island in the middle of a raging ocean. And the current oftentimes brings a man to our shore, just washes a man ashore. And we take him and pull him up and give him what he needs. Uh, I also see us as a combination of three things. I see us as a church, even though we're not technically a church. We do a lot of things that resemble church. I see us as a home for men who haven't had one for a while, maybe ever. And I see us as a program that equips men uh, with the tools they'll need to be fruitful and faithful in their life. After four years as the uh, head of client services, you became the director of the Men's Development Center. What, what changes did you make? Well, uh, I, I would say this. Uh, the, the changes uh, are mostly, uh, almost said cosmetic, but they're not. They're mostly programmatic. Uh, we expanded uh, the number of programs that we have for men there. When I first uh, became the director, we had essentially one program, which means there was one eh, long-term opportunity for a man to um, engage in the things that would help him get the kind of life that he needed to get. And as I studied that more and more, I thought, well, there's maybe a little, maybe arrogance is the wrong word, too strong a word, but there's a little bit of blindness to the fact that that was a one-size-fits-all kind of deal. And so we began to look around and we discovered that different men come in with different needs. And we cobbled together a series of other programs. We have about seven different programs now, all ranging from a year to two years in length, so that a man can come into our building with a certain set of needs that we're able more than likely to accommodate with one of those programs or or the other. Uh, so we expanded the number of opportunities. We call them ports of entry uh, into the kingdom and the grace of God. So we have about seven or eight of those now. And even the men who aren't interested in one of those kinds of programs are in, uh, we, we used to call them the transient population. These are the men that just come in off the street for whatever, like I said, something to eat, place to sleep. Uh, we even refer to that as a program. It's called the rescue program. And uh, it's a program in that we teach them the value of order when they're in our building. Whatever it is they're doing, there's an order and a purpose to it, even if it's just lining up for the meal. There's a certain way to do it that's the right way. Uh, we teach them if it's in you to do this, when, you, <laughs> when the man or whoever hands you the plate of, uh, of lunch, uh, it would do you good to say thank you to them. And uh, there's a certain place to sit, a certain way to do showers. Uh, we do showers uh, in the afternoon, 10 minutes at a time. So it's not, not one of these deals where guys just rush the door to be the first in line. We take them by bed number. It's very orderly. You know what we found along the way is that men really want that. They want that order. And they begin to thrive in it. Some may... Uh, play around a little bit at first and, um, you know, try and clown around with it. But after a while, it starts to feel good to have things move in a certain direction and to have pegs to hang your clothes on, so to speak. 
and to and to just know that there's a right way uh, to do what it is that's before you to do. So those are some of the changes we made. I would say, though, the greater thing for me is uh, the thing that's never changed there, and that is the gospel and the need uh, and the thrust in the men's shelter to constantly uh, hold up a Savior that loves them. That's never changed. That's in the heart of Star of Hope. And I would say that as long as that remains constant in Star of Hope, uh, we'll be okay. We'll be all right. And God will provide. What do you, how would you describe your role there? I mean, were you a father figure? Were you a pastor? <laughs> I, I was a little bit of several things. Yeah. Uh, I, when I came in there as the director, I didn't come from a corporate background, a business background, any of that. I came from an ecclesiastical background, a pastoral background. And so my determination was, even though the men's shelter would not be a church per se, the only thing I knew was church. I knew how to, how to do church. And so early on, I began to give our staff uh, that was there at the time the sense that uh, this was God's house. And among other things, he's a God of order and not of chaos. And we're going to have an overlay of peace and security and forward movement. We'll see these men as uh, the sheep of our flock and not as file numbers and, you know, cases to keep in a file. We're going to see them as human beings that God loves. And we'll see them as the image of God on two legs. And we'll treat them as though we were their pastors and their shepherds. And so when a case manager, for example, now has 12, 15 men on a caseload, his mentality is, or it should be anyway, that he sees them as a little flock of sheep. And one of the things that changed with that was uh, instead of a man uh, not being allowed to have a bad moment uh, along the way, uh, we now allow them to have a bad moment as long as it doesn't get out of hand. Mm. When I first came there, if a man, say you were uh, a case manager, Scott, and a man looked at you cross-eyed or said something a little curt to you, more than likely he'd be shown the gate. And I said, we, gotta, we have to stop doing that. We have to see these men as the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and we're going to let them have a bad moment every so often. And instead of booting them out, we're going to start to bring them in our office and ask them, what's going on with you? What, what, that's not like you. What, what's causing you to have that outburst or be kind of edgy or whatever? And it changed everything. It changed the whole tone uh, of what goes on in that building uh, so that men, uh, I think now, by and large, are free to uh, admit their weaknesses and uh, even their sin and they're falling and they're tripping and they're sinking along the way without fear that somehow that's going to penalize them. Now, the flip side of that coin is uh, there's a certain handful of things that will disqualify a man from being in that building, primarily having to do with violence or the threat of harm to another person, whether it's a staff member or another man in the building. Or, uh, this is my terminology, you've heard this before, uh, if a man is just perpetually obstreperous, just over a period of two or three or four weeks, he just can't get with the program and, 
You know, he keeps uh, stirring things up, and he's got a my way or the highway mentality going on. Then if it becomes clear to us that that isn't going to be healed, so to speak, then we'll refer him out uh, to somebody else that will maybe have a better opportunity to help him than we will. Other than that, uh, we'll take just about any man that comes to us. Anybody that washes up on our shore, we'll take. Uh, Some people ask now, do they have to be clean and sober before they can come in? Nope. They don't. Uh, That's just our way. Now, they have to be able to comport themselves relatively well, uh, even if they're under the influence of something, and they cannot be in the building and partake of those things. Uh, But they certainly, we allow them to come in uh, if they're uh, a little weak, nervous, and jerky, and uh, because that's what we're there for. Uh, To us, it's counterproductive to say to somebody, go get yourself straightened out and then come. We're there to help straighten them out. And so they come to us, and that's the word on the street, that if you want help, that's a place that will help you. The other word on the street is if you want to cause a problem, don't go in there because they won't tolerate that. So it's, a, it's really people come into that place who've never been in there before, and they can't believe it is what it is because it's serene. You've been there. It, it doesn't smell bad, unlike the old men's shelter that I used to love. Uh, and, you know, men are putting their hand to a plow. Men are in work therapy assignments. They're working hard. They're in class. And it's quiet and peaceful and, as I said a minute ago, forward-moving. want the men to move ahead. Um, we tell the men, except for a small group of men who are kind of elderly and just physically and maybe mentally weak, uh, that's not a place that is going to be forever and forever, amen, for a man. And so there's a, a built-in point at which uh, they leave the nest after we see that they're strong enough and fortified enough to be deployed back into the world. Our terminology for them is we're deploying you into the world as world changers for Christ. So we're not sending them out just as fattened up versions of what they were when they got there but we send them back out as soldiers, in a way, of uh, the cause of the kingdom. In over 20 years, you've worked with a lot of men. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the biggest change in oh. an individual that you've ever seen. Uh, I, it'd be hard to pick one. Um, I think of a handful of them that are representative of just the impossibility that uh, comes in the door every day. Uh, there was a there was a guy named um, Timothy who several years ago, many many years ago, actually came in, and uh, he was drug addicted and functionally illiterate, and had a constant headache. And we had at that point a wonderful soul uh, named Dr. Louise Moorhead who came in as an ophthalmologist one day a week. And we sent Timothy into her, and he had an eye exam, and she discovered that he had a tumor uh, on his the backside of his eye, the size of a golf ball. And we rushed him to Bentob Hospital. They uh, he underwent surgery. They removed the tumor, and she, in essence, said that saved his life. He came back to us, entered one of our programs, and um, began to learn to read and write. And uh, the last I heard was after he left, uh, he had become employed and was clean and sober and involved in his church. And all those things that we teach them are vitally important. 
to their life here on earth. So Timothy is representative of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men that God, by his hand of love and sovereign grace, brings uh, to that ministry. What is the exact title of the Men's Center? It's called the Men's Development Center, the Doris and Carlos Morris Men's Development Center. Doris and Carlos Morris, uh, both of them in heaven now, were tremendous engines behind Star of Hope for about 50 years. And uh, Mr. Morris's father, preceding him, uh, was a real shaper of what Star of Hope was to become. And the Morrises were extremely generous people uh, financially, but also in terms of their time and uh, their prayer effort for us and just their encouragement. They're wonderful, uh, wonderful souls. And so when in 2000 uh, we finished uh, the Men's Development Center, uh, it was determined that it would be only appropriate to name it uh, after those two wonderful souls. And so when you drive up uh, to the front door, that's the name you see uh, over the door, the Doris and Carlos Morris Men's Development Center. And uh, I can think of no better way to honor uh, two people who love God, loved God with all their heart, and uh, committed their way to Christ, and who knew that the resources they had belonged to him and not to them. They were exceptionally generous and wonderful people. In almost 20 years, you changed a lot of lives. Do you think that when you stand before God, he'll be pleased? I certainly hope so. I believe he will. Um, I think he's going to be most pleased, though, in uh, the uh, what I did when I was 17 years old in uh, surrendering my life to Christ, not knowing much more about him than uh, he was the Son of God and he would be there with me all the time. Uh, and obviously in the years um, since that, uh, that understanding of him has deepened tremendously. And uh, I understand that he is um, he's my mediator and he is my substitute and he is my eternal friend. And I do believe that, as Jesus said, uh, that anybody who believes in him at that moment when he enters uh, the gate uh, will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So I can't wait to hear that in a way. I'm not quite ready yet. I still have some things to do. But when that moment comes for me, and uh, it's time for me to uh, transition from this life to the eternal life, I really do believe, Scott, that's the first thing I'm going to hear. It's the first thing you're going to hear. And anybody who belongs to Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your salvation. And you'll be wearing a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> Could be, with some wings on the back. <laughs> I have known this man almost 20 years, and with the exception of a formal occasion, and including today, he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Where'd that come from? Well, it's 80 degrees in Houston today, so... You well, know. you wear a Hawaiian shirt when it's 40 degrees Well, I know, that's, that's true. It's just, um, I'll blame my wife. She likes me to wear Hawaiian shirts. You like to sing little bit. I'm not that good, but um, I'm not going to sing now, so I'm, I, you're looking at me like I'm going to sing something, and I'm not going to. But uh, yeah, we have a singing faith. Our faith is full of uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving to the Lord, and I think, uh, and we teach the men to sing. We have some guys that can really sing in that men's shelter. And as you know, Scott, when you come to a commencement, <laughs> you hear some of those old, timeless hymns sung by 
men who uh, really had nothing when they came in and singing to the top of their lungs. There's hardly anything better to hear. And so, yeah, we love we love to sing. And you are still going to stick around and do a couple of uh, podcasts. Yes, there, whatever right? you want. You I, I'd love to do that. Sure will. Really do. Sure will. Star of Hope has been family for almost two decades, and it's about to end. What are your feelings? Uh, obviously going to miss uh, the day-to-day uh, interaction with people like you and uh, the folks I've served with uh, at the Men's Development Center. For Some have been there uh, as long as I've been there. And um, so I'm going to miss um, a lot of that fellowship and that camaraderie and sort of the the uh, unified um, sense of doing the same thing uh, together uh, for the men that we serve. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm so convinced that this is of God that I, I don't have the typical thing you might have of, man, am I doing the right thing or am I doing the wrong thing? I know for me to to move on is in a way, this may not be the best way to say it, but in a way it's it's me moving out of the way so that the next person uh, can come in with gifts that I may not have and a uh, point of view that I may not have on the ministry of the men's shelter and take it to the next level and make it even better. So th- it's sort of a mixed bag of emotion mm-hmm. and, and all of those things. but. Um, Star of Hope's been in my heart since I was 17, and it will never leave my heart. It'll be in my heart until I go on to glory. Let's wrap this up in your style, as only you can do. Would you please leave us with prayer for the end of our podcast and uh, the end of your time at Star of Hope? Yes, sir. I'll be happy to. Thank you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for this uh, momentous day that you've given to us. We know this is the day which you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you that you are the Lord of all, and that you are the King of creation, that you are our Savior, and that you are our friend, the friend of all sinners. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that you are the open door, the good shepherd, the true vine, the great high priest. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this podcast. We pray that it would go forth uh, and, and fall on ears that need to be encouraged and need to know what our God can do. And especially if there's some person listening uh, today who feels hopeless and despairing, uh, let these words somehow, Father, be used by your Holy Spirit uh, to bring encouragement and renewal and surrender to you. We thank you for Star of Hope, Lord, and for this 112 and 113 years of faithful ministry to the lost, the broken, and the dying in the city of Houston and even beyond. Continue to supply Star of Hope, Father, with everything she needs so that she would rely on you and be faithful to you in the proclamation of the life-changing, eternity-securing gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his blessed and holy name that we ask all these things. Amen. This is Dick Drury. A Moment of Hope is produced and presented by the Star of Hope Mission, ending homelessness one life, one family at a time by providing services to more than 1,000 homeless men, women, and children. 
each day in Houston. Could you spare a little hope today? For more information or to donate to the Star of Hope mission, please visit sohmission.org.